Hi, I'm Ethan. I love muzzleloading. Today we're talking with Bill Schneider. Bill has been involved in muzzleloading, living history, black powder culture in general since he was eight years old. And he has recently found himself involved with the School of the Long Hunter at Prickett's Fort. We're going to have links to everything that Bill is talking about in the show notes below. Also, I want to say, because we don't talk about it until a little bit later in the episode, the School of the Long Hunter is open to the public. Hello, my name is uh, Bill Schneider. I've come into this unique love and interest of uh, muzzleloading from an early age. When, uh, since I was a little boy, my dad, who was an avid outdoorsman, an avid uh, firearm enthusiast, especially historic firearms, would uh, drag me around to flea markets, auctions, and gun shows were obviously one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. And then as, uh, as I grew up, um, he started to refine his interest because he was also very interested in, um, we have Native American ancestry. So he was doing some research with that and became interested in uh, amateur archaeology and artifact hunting. And it kind of got rolled up into this ball of interest um, and found out there are lots of people out there that were interested in historic arms and so my dad kind of sought out different places where people would congregate together. Well, we're a better place to get muzzleloading enthusiasts together than when you get to the rendezvous uh, circuit and the black powder shoots. Yeah. And my father uh, became good friends with a gentleman, a local gentleman who was a fur buyer who also happened to have connections in the muzzleloading world. So he started to take us along. And eventually that worked into my father um, getting an invitation to go to the Nationals and Friendship in the spring. Oh, cool. Because our friend uh, actually had a booth there. Oh, okay. And he was selling raw materials like furs and bones <coughs> and antler. And that's what my dad started to do as a side uh, interest was uh, dealing in raw materials for uh, black powder enthusiasts and people who are doing recreated items. Mm-hmm. My, um, so when I was 11, I was able to actually go to friendship um, after my dad had gone for several years. And it was a very neat experience. Um, I had participated in local shoots as far as uh, tomahawk throwing. That was my first competition that I did in the muzzleloading world. Mm-hmm. That's a good one to get started on. Uh, yeah, it was really neat. My dad brought me back a tomahawk from Friendship. That's what, the first thing he came back from his first <laughs> trip out there. I was eight. Oh. And uh, so that was a real nice piece to the the whole kit and outfit. Yeah. And next year he brought his friend, made us uh, coonskin hats. So <laughs> kept rolling yeah. as most people um, or a lot of people I run into kind of find out and they have these interests that uh, kind of mesh together, you know, from watching Davy Crockett as a kid, you know, mm-hmm. uh, watching Daniel Boone. Um, and then the funny part is the other night uh, my daughter was home visiting from uh, Norfolk, Virginia and she asked what I was watching on a TV. And I said, you've never seen Centennial. <laughs> he goes, what's that? 
And I said, well, let me introduce you to Centennial. Uh, and that was another spur for myself to want to go into uh, a deeper study of not only the black powder arms and, and flip locks, but also what's the history behind the guys that used it? Why did they use it? Why did they need to use it? And I was thinking about that the other night about how a pivotal role that kind of played in my interest. Yeah. And so as we kept going along to friendship, I kept building, I started out with a mountain man kit, Western style. I learned from different uh, friends of my dad's um, how to do leather work. And I had other people kind of tutoring me and um, trying to better my tomahawk throwing ability. And we were always on the lookout for a reasonable flintlock. And I know my dad came home with a reasonable flintlock, a long rifle, uh, which was a, ended up after I found out it was the older CVA kit that really nicely put together. Mm -hmm. And he and I shot uh, for a long time. Um, and I developed an interest historically based. There was a, uh, an older gentleman and his wife that set up a friendship that had all this Rogers Rangers you know, oh, stuff. Yeah. They had books. The, the guy's wife made clothing. I bought my first uh, bonnet from them. And so I grew into this really love of Rogers Rangers. And that's where I decided I was going to start focusing and doing more living history than some of the uh, black powder shooting. Right. So the best thing came to happen where all the worlds met together in um, the mid eighties after I graduated high school, I found a local black power group who were avid shooters but they also like to represent and and uh do living history with a local group in meadville pennsylvania because mm -hmm. that's where i'm at, originally from okay that area there and we started doing that and so i would do their shoots every month and i eventually worked up and saved up money and two two of the gentlemen in our group uh, were gun builders and I purchased a gun off of each of them. I <laughs> purchased a rifle off, uh, uh, one gentleman and I purchased a smoothbore toolie off another gentleman. Okay. And the funny part is the gentleman that I got the smoothbore toolie from actually ended up being the best man in my wedding oh. uh, when I got married. Wow. So it, I always loved the connections that, uh, the black powder world brought you always had an extended family that was always looking out for you was always there to uh, give you advice listen to you help you out um and make sure you're doing things the way you needed to mm -hmm. and so i feel very fortunate as you can guess i've been doing this uh, since I was eight and I just turned 56 so <laughs> <laughs> it's been a pretty Long much your home. whole life you could say yeah, <laughs> very, very blessed and very fortunate because I've met some fantastic people over the years. Yeah. And as we talked earlier before we started, I'm still meeting people that are more than willing to share and help. Um, in fact, Jeff Luke, he's he's a great guy. I got to meet him 
um, and talked with him a little bit and met face to face at the CLA show. And uh, he's he's helped me out on a bunch of different projects that I've asked questions. So. I decided to divest from the the black powder shooting because at best I'm a mediocre shooter (laughs) and (laughs) I concentrated on uh, historical reenactments. Okay. So, so you kind of have run the whole gambit then of, you know, getting interested as a kid, thanks to, uh, thanks to your father and, and his interests and just being brought along and other interests in the outdoors. And you've just, you've pretty much done it all, you know, and now you've, you've kind of found a comfortable place to be at, you know, in the community as a, as a living historian still out there with your muzzleloader, but maybe not necessarily shooting competitively, right? Exactly. Okay. The funny part is (laughs) you love this. (laughs) So as time goes by, the lackluster of... Uh, how should we say blowing smoke and powder has kind of run its course. We still love doing the living history. We still love doing presentations. We're connected with several different forts. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're working on doing living history presentations for the public at those. And my wife, she is um, found a niche in doing period cooking and displays and demonstrations with that. Okay. So now I'm starting to get back into attempting shooting again. Okay. Because we have another group of friends that we associate with that are going to shoots all the time and they keep bugging us now that we're retired. (laughs) They want us to come out and and do that. And I have a reenactment group I belong to now a uh, good group of guys and we have an annual event at uh, the commander's house. He has a uh, rebuilt uh, early cabin that he found outside of Cincinnati and he took it back to east of Cleveland where his property is and he rebuilt it. Oh, that's and cool. Annual uh, shoot. And it's really great. Wow. So it kind of, again, blends the worlds all back together again. Mm-hmm. Um, so my interest is peaking back up again to do some of the shooting. Yeah. That's something in the, I think all the conversations I've had both on the show and then, you know, just when I'm at an event, uh, talking with people, I think that's something that comes up a lot is that ability to have a variety of interests around muzzleloading and kind of go back and forth between all of them. Because we were talking before the show too, is, is you're a, you're a traditional craftsman and an artisan as well, alongside your interest in the history. And, and now you're kind of reemerging interest in shooting, right? Correct. I think it's, it's an interesting aspect now because you, when you use the materials or I should say, when you use the equipment, that's as close to mirroring what they would have used. You get a whole different understanding of, wow, I can't believe they did some of the things they did Yeah, with the gear and kit and equipment that they had. Um, I know one of the things I try to do original style bags. Mm-hmm. And I tell you what, it is probably one of the most frustrating and I haven't listened to the complete podcast you did with 
with Jeff Luke the other day, and I'm in the I'm in the process of, of going through it. Well, thank you. It's it is um, a frustrating attempt because it's hard to find originals. Originals don't survive because they're yeah. used, abused, and beat. And being made of of totally natural materials, they just go back to the earth, you know, with yeah, any yeah. kind of exposure, they just return. It makes it yeah, difficult. They're not sustainable. Yeah. Not like a, like a flintlock. A flintlock is fairly sustainable for a long period of time. Um, and unless it's been passed down in a family, a hunting bag is not going to last. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. the, best, the best one is, so my lineage... My family originally comes from the Philadelphia area. Oh, cool. I was born outside of Philadelphia, actually a stone's throw away from Valley Forge. <clears throat> and we ended back up in the Meadville area because my dad went uh, after my grandfather had moved up to, to the area to go work for an engineering firm in Erie. Um, they told my dad that, hey, there's this brand new opportunity or hiring a lot of people. And Pittsburgh Plate Glass was putting in a uh, glass factory. So my dad came up and worked in the glass factory industry, hmm. making glass for automotives. <clears throat> so that brought us up to this area. Um, but we would go back, and, and the historical aspects there when I was a kid was very important. But as I was older and we'd go visit my relatives, there's a couple museums there that are really key. One is the Mercer Museum in... Bucks County at Doylestown, PA. And the other one is the Washington's Crossing Museum at uh, in Jersey. And okay. that holds what's called the Swan Collection. And Swan had this extensive collection of material culture from the Revolutionary War period. And one of the ones that always I always thought was funny or ironic is that a hunting bag survived only because it got buried it was in a chicken coop. Really? Yeah. And I still, to this day, it must've been the right atmosphere and everything else. And it, and it preserved it fairly well. Um, so those are, those are two places that I would try and draw from by looking at the originals that are in those museums. Cause Mr. Mercer, he collected everything and anything that had to do with um, ancient and outdated technology. Hmm. Because his idea was he didn't want people to forget where we came from and what we did. Yeah. And I guess that's the theme of what I've been doing with, you know, um, what we do is trying to find out ourselves, but also be able to share it with other people. Yeah, I, I think there's a... It, there's kind of two sides to that because you have the collections and you have the museums that you can go and, and view this stuff and see it, you know, kind of passed through time. But there's a whole nother layer of that where you're doing your best to recreate it and go out and do the things that people did. Yes. Like I, uh, my big thing is like footwear. Like I love Gore-Tex boots. Best invention. Uh if I, if I had to go back to 1780, and I can only take one thing, it'd be a pair of Gore-Tex boots, <laughs> because when you put on those, you know, colonial or, you know, those or footwear inspired by that, that alone is something we take for granted 
is is just huge in that era. And when you think about as much as people were moving and as much as they were doing, a modern footwear, this may be kind of silly, maybe you're shaking your head and the, and the listener is too, but that's such a big thing that can be very easily overlooked. And you might not think about that that much when you're looking at it in a museum until you're out in the woods wearing those shoes, you know, going up the side of a hill or a mountain. If you haven't done it, you really have no idea. Yeah. And that, and that may sound funny to listeners, but that's all part of this recreative history, experimental archaeology, however you would like to put it. Um, I'm a, I think I'm a very blessed person because of my acquaintances and people that I can seriously call friends. I have individuals that I've met in the past. Uh, we used to go to the guys I hung out with back in the eighties would go to uh, Daniel Morgan rifle shoot in Winchester, Virginia mm-hmm. religiously every year. And I met and, and struck up a friendship with Daniel Winkler. Um, and I've also got to meet through my different, uh, um, things we went and did, uh, Mark Baker, who uh-huh. I still keep up with correspondence and talk with Mark Baker all the time. And, you know, you get some of these other people that are, were doing it. I mean, they, that, that was the key thing was, wow, these guys are actually going out and, and not only are they making stuff, they're actually going out and trying to use it and get by with it. Mm-hmm. And, Fortunately, we would go, uh, Pennsylvania has a wonderful flintlock only season. Yes. And I'm not sure if it's, it's the only state that still does this, but the day after Christmas starts traditional flintlock season in Pennsylvania for, I think, three, four weeks. Yeah. So we had a friend of ours who had a camp in the Allegheny National Forest not sitting on the outskirts. And we would go and we would dress traditionally and use our flintlocks and go hunting. Oh. And there were some humbling times. I remember I was going to down to determine that I was going to just do nothing but mocks. And the mocks I had didn't work out. And I had to go back to the truck and get a pair of pack boots. <laughs> I had to surrender that part because it was snowing hard and there's nothing worse than going up and down the, the hills in the Allegheny National Forest, slipping and sliding like you got skis on yeah. because you didn't know exactly what to do. And then you kind of evolve from there and do a little more research, a little more digging and a little more experimentation. And you find out some things that'll help you work. And then within two years, we were doing uh, backpack deer hunts in temperatures, you know, zero negative five at night and we were all very comfortable and wearing moccasins and and you know it was it's an always an, a constant evolution and it's always a constant learning yeah those were the kind of things that they passed down those little details you know about how something was made or, or how to use it you know that i think can be lost to time and that's why i love talking to guys like you that are out there you know, going through and rediscovering that process. 
and you know trying to understand our forefathers and, and foremothers really and, and on how they existed and, and how they made it work because they looking back they did some incredible things in in very difficult times yes and the funny part is when you start doing the research and and reading the uh, firsthand journals and accounts mm-hmm. a lot of times you'll be told the bad things that happen and you get a better understanding for how things, how rough things were, but how they were problem solvers. Now I'm not saying that every frontierman or every native American that walked the paths in the 18th century survived those times because we have lots of evidence that they did not. Yeah. But there's, there's like a, for example, there's a story uh, that uh, two gentlemen were out on a hunt and they were hunting for deer and they ran into some troubles and they lost some deer and equipment and they were down the one knife between the two of them. Jeez. And the one guy says, listen, I have to go back to the settlements and get more supplies for us. And his buddy who had the last remaining knife said, okay, no problem. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to stay here and I'm going to continue to hunt. You go get us what we need and come back. And he goes, wait, you can't go without a knife. So he takes his knife, somehow busts it in half. He keeps half and he gives the other half to his buddy who's going back to the settlements. <laughs> you know, as listeners are thinking, think about your knife that you have or you use for – um you know, black powder hunting, shooting, reenacting, living history, whatever. Think about the process of trying to break that. Yeah. I know a lot of artisans today that pride themselves on their product (laughs) and they will not bust. Yeah. And so the whole idea of, wait a minute, you're telling me that some of the materials they were using were not quite as good as what we're using today. And the answer is yes. But they still made do with it. Yeah. And still survived with it. And to me, that's extremely intriguing. Yeah. <laughs> Off the top of your head, do you have any, uh, you know, quick firsthand accounts to, to recommend people look into? Um, an interesting one is John Tanner, and it's called The Falcon. And I think it's the Penguin Press book, so it's not like a real difficult thing to find. But he was a gentleman that was taken captive. And some of the different things that he talks about, he talks about losing equipment and gear and having to shoot strange things out of his gun for hunting. And um, it's it's a very good story because it follows him as he grows up for, as a boy. Right. In captive narratives, if you can get a hold of them, some of them, really do paint a really interesting picture of the colonial frontier. Doddridge's accounts, if you can get a hold of any Doddridge's accounts, they're great. Uh, Baton, Wharton, and Morgan transcripts out of Fort Pitt. They have some interesting things to tell you about what people were getting, buying, and, and using. Um, and there's a ton more out there. Yeah, that's that's. Wonderful. Thank you. That should be plenty to get folks interested. I know I'm taking notes and I'm going to be diving into this. This is awesome. 
This podcast is brought to you by Thor Bullets. Thor Bullets are a premium full-bore muzzleloader bullet designed specifically for modern inline rifles. Thor Bullets do not require plastic sabos or belts to be fired, meaning less cleaning for you between shots. The patented copper base creates an airtight seal, giving you greater distance and accuracy. Thor's unique engineering allows the bullets to retain 95% of their weight upon impact, and the controlled expansion ensures large, easy-to-follow blood trails. Thor bullets are currently available in a 50 caliber version that is sized to your specific bore. Thor is also expanding into a new 45 caliber bullet designed for faster 1 in 24 and 1 in 22 twist inline rifles. For more information on these great bullets, visit www.thorbullets.com. We'd like to thank Thor Bullets for their sponsorship of this podcast. What do you think captivates us, and I just mean us, and just in general in the community, about the long hunters and the era of the long hunters? Because I think that's kind of a go-to place for us to research and, and portray and try to understand a little bit more of. And I'm really curious as to what you think on that. That is an interesting question. I think, in, in my opinion, in some respects, the term long hunter has been misunderstood. And I think that people misunderstand that long, they think long hunter is a very narrow subject. Hmm. In fact, it is so broad and there's so many things that go into it that we really need to step back and instead of looking at a narrow vision, we got to use a, a broader sense. Okay. Mark Baker did a wonderful job of really bringing to light long hunters and what they were, because I think there's this there's this uh, romantic idea of being on your own hook and being out there amongst God and the world and doing your own thing. Yeah. And depending on what you have at hand, your flintlock, your tomahawk, your knife, and, you know, your shooting bag, that's all you have. So I think there's this attraction and allure to that idea of, wow, that can that, that actually happened, actually occurred. And the other part of it is, what makes these people tick? Mm -hmm. What made these people do what they did? I mean, the for the for the more seasoned individuals in our hobby, a lot of people were influenced by Fess Parker. So that whole introduction to Davy Crockett, Daniel Boone was a seed that was planted. It and the things that Boone did. When you tell people about, you tell kids, and I'll. <laughs> easily because of the way kids think is kids are like, Oh man, there's no way that dude walked all that way and came back. And yeah. Like, we took our boy scout troop where I live in Chautauqua County, New York, which is the farthest you can get from New York city and still be in New York. We're five miles from the Pennsylvania border, but we happen to live close to Chautauqua Lake. And this is the area where Celeron, the French officer came down in 1749 and he portaged from Lake Erie to Chautauqua Lake, put in the Chautauqua Lake, and then they went down the Allegheny and they were placing lead plates to demarc French territory for the king of France. Hmm. And so we took our Boy Scouts and we actually did the portage on the anniversary 
of the 1749 trip, so the 250th, we we actually portaged from. We took our troop and we walked from uh, Barcelona Harbor, right on Lake Erie, all the way to Taco Lake. Those kids are like, "Wow, this is this is unreal." Yeah. I said, "Yeah, what they this was a normal thing for them to do." So again, there's that there's that lore of, and and interest that what these people did in our history, I think sometimes seems far fetched or seems like a fantasy. But then when you start to experience it yourself, you're like, wow, this is, this is pretty, pretty wild. You know, this is yeah, the feats that they did and survived. Most people today wouldn't survive. Yeah, I know I wouldn't. <laughs> it, 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 it was very rough. Thing heard. Yeah. And I'm not even starting to get into all the, the battles that took place. Um, you know, during the French and Indian War or when the natives were battling back and forth with the settlers that were going into their territory. That's just, I can't imagine living with that idea that around every tree could be a tomahawk waiting for you, so to speak. Yeah. You know, so there's, they, they lived in a, it's very difficult for people to understand the mindset. And I think that's what sometimes piques the interest even more of I want to know what that mindset was like as much as I can mm-hmm. so that we are trying to wrap ourselves into this world and goes down to muzzle loading and black powder shooting what are the frustrations they had I'll give you I'll give you an example and I'm not going to give any names because I'll get in trouble <laughs> <laughs> a good friend of ours he is well known in our in our group for being an extremely good shot and he had some issues with footlock that he had to reduce some readjustments and he took it hunting with another friend of ours and he missed a deer and this guy never misses. So there is a firsthand account today of a frustration that took place in the 18th century. <laughs> and then he had to go back and re put his gun together uh, and rebench it to get it sighted back in again. Right. So um, I, th- I think that's all part of the game and, and it just it drives this fascination that we have. Yeah, you know, it, I mean, it wasn't perfect. Correct. It wasn't correct. easy. It's like shooting bags. Oh my god! If you have shooting bags, I had in my house. You probably. I always joke with Matt Wolf because he's got the same problem I do. Is we're always buying and and upgrading, and I'm a bag maker. <laughs> there are there are many many excellent bag makers out there. But trying to get the right balance, the right feel, and the right fit, and I'm sitting there thinking to myself, if I'm the guy that had to make one for myself on the frontier, I didn't have that luxury of trying one for a couple of months or a year and then maybe selling it because I didn't like it the way it works for me. Right. You know? They're they're having to try and get it right the first time or they just have to deal with it. Yeah. So that's 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 different for all of us. And again, it, it gives us that interest looking into it more. I think that's a really great answer to a, to a kind of off the wall question there. Well, <laughs> I, I agree. I agree on all the counts, man. Cause it's just, it, it's a very complicated thing. Yeah. And the funny one, if you have not listeners, if you have not had a chance to look at David Wright's art, hmm. David Wright is a fantastic artist. He's a great guy. Um, if you ever get a chance to read some of his military history, he's done some fantastic things for our country. He has a unique perspective on life. 
and he is a heck of a historian. He did a print of a long hunter camp, probably one of the best representations out there, excuse me, by a contemporary artist. The only thing that's missing is the blue haze and the smell. Hmm. Yeah. Because if you think about some of these camps that these long hunters were in, they would come together in these camps and they would have guys fleshing hides, guys taking the hair off of hides. So you'd have hair all over the place. You'd have dogs running around and you'd have, you know, some stuff starting to get rancid. And the, the something that you will never ever be able to reproduce, but your imagination go wild with you yeah. as to what these guys actually did, what they put up with. And again, I think long hunters are misunderstood still today because I think everybody, the long hunter craze got so big and popped that I think some people started to get tired of, oh, there's another long hunter guy. Yeah. Oh, there's a long hunter. And when you go to events, that's what people were doing because there was such a, a fascination, a, a grasp of what that was. And people really wanted to try and have that feeling of what it was for a long hunter, you know? Yeah. Um, but I think we're, we're coming back to, yeah, this is, this is some really interesting stuff. We have more research coming out and better understandings now. And like Nathan's talk, he's going to be trying to give people opportunity to have that thought that get that spark. How do I go back and look at my kit? And if I want to be more emulative of a long hunter, what do I need to do to change? Mm-hmm. Again, one more step in the evolution. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, I think as close as we can get to time travel. <laughs> yes. So this all kind of leads us to, I would say probably the main instigator for our conversation here. But would you say that this has led you to being involved, you know, your history from being a kid throwing a tomahawk to becoming an adult and, and going out and hunting with totally traditional gear as it was made, as it was used, that all led you to the school of the long hunter. Yes, it did. So as I've already kind of let you in on, my passion started off with the era of the French and Indian War and Rogers Rangers. And I, I joined a group called Jaeger's Battalion, which is a, a fairly well-known group of gentlemen from mostly eastern states, maybe into Michigan and Indiana, out your way, uh, that recreate Rogers Rangers, and they go to historic sites, participate in reenactment battles. And so that got me the foot in the door. Hmm. And I kind of came back to a different evolutionary path uh, as I met some gentlemen who were doing eastern woodland native interpretations. So back in the... Oh, mid mid nineties, I completely reversed and went and started doing uh, traditional Shawnee. Okay, century. <clears throat> so I kept up with our friends in the black powder world, and the only reason I bring this up is because the gentleman that used to go with me to some of the like Fort Ticonderoga, um, they were really into shooting mm-hmm. and so what happened is this why came on the on the evolutionary tree where i went off and stayed in reenactments and did native american and my friends basically diversed and stayed completely into the world of black powder shooting rendezvous and so forth and they 
started and created that was the foundation of what we call the green hats okay that was the gentleman that started that organization so they really delved i don't know if you've heard of them or not they're yeah they're a very highly competitive um shooting organization great guys and if you they'll find you and try to make you one of their own because they they pride themselves on um surrounding themselves with good shooters so as i was moving along and i kept up conversations with mark baker because i kept hounding him about different research pieces where can i go and so forth i got to go down to mansker station with our friends to do a presentation on native american life during their mansker station days where they had um, like a colonial fair and set up and i got to spend more time with mark uh, doing some things and presentations down there and that's kind of where i learned about the things they were doing at uh, Prickett's Fort, because Mark was going to speak at this new event called School Long Hunter. Hmm. And so it kind of piqued my interest, but I was doing Native American. I really wasn't into the Long Hunter aspects. Right. I also was involved with selling reproduction items, and I used to sell Centermark smoothbores. And I was sitting at home one night and Ray Woodall, the owner of Centermark, had called me up about one of the orders I had placed because I had some uh, gentlemen from a couple different French units and a couple Native American reenactors had ordered some guns and I needed to know when I could pick them up. And he calls up me up and says, hey, Bill, he says, you want to buy the company? <laughs> and I'm like, ah, oh, that's interesting, Ray. I said, I'm not... I'm a, I'm a young father of, of uh, two kids, and I don't have money to put into that. I said, but I know a guy that might want to. And I contacted a friend of ours locally who had a muzzleloader shop and had done competitive NSA SA shooting and was an avid black powder hunter, flintlock hunter, and, and he built guns. Mm -hmm. So long story short, we brought Centermark from Pittsburgh, and my friend brought it to Fredonia, New York, where it's been ever since. Nice. As he was building guns, I would go and be the marketing and sales guy and take shows. So he goes, hey, what's this school of long hunter thing? Can you take center mark down there? So I took our marquee and in 1999, I set center mark up. Huh. Because there were some people that had saw some of our uh, guns that we were producing out of the Fredonia workshop now. And in 97, we had the Eastern Rendezvous at Allegheny State Park, which is about 30 minutes down the road from me. <laughs> <clears throat> so that was always a fun one. That was, if everybody remembers that one, all of you black powder shooters that go to Easterns, remember that, the Mudfest. <laughs> but I was the prize chairman and trade chief for that event. And so... We were able to get our center marks out there a little more. Um, I was contacting people to getting donations and prizes. I think we gave away 15 different flintlock rifles and we gave pistols and knives and limited edition prints was probably one of the best prize giveaways of any Eastern has ever been there. And that was another thing. People were like, hey, you got to go to this school long hunter, met in some people. And so... 1999, we go and take Center Mark to school in Long Hunter, and I'm like, wow, this is a this is a nice, cool little event because it's it's not just about Long Hunter; it's it's about taking a look at history 
and how we can best try to experience it today. Yeah. And um, had many different topics of interest to anybody that's interested in the outdoors or, you know, uh, history or black powder guns. Hmm. And so I kept going. I would take center mark and I got to be real good friends with the director. We had some common interests and we knew some common people because I had friends with uh, the director of Fort Pitnell, Alan Gutchess, and he used to run an Eastern Woodland Indian conference. And that's how I networked and connected up with some, with some of these folks. And so we had through common contacts and interests, uh, we became friends and he said, Hey, can you bring some native topics in the school of lawn hunter? <laughs> he goes, I think this is an important aspect that, that needs to be talked about because we want to try and round out everybody's experience to not just, Hey, these are guys that go in the woods and smell stinky because they've been around deer hides and deer hair for months on end and they're waiting in it. Yeah. You want to represent, you know, everybody that was there if you can. Yeah. And, and you want to represent all challenges that they would have run into. Yeah. So we started doing some native topics and we would spring, I would do a topic or a session and I started doing that, and then I met the infamous uh, Nathan Kobuck. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, we hit it off. And um, this young kid that I met, I'm like, wow, this young kid knows a lot. And so we started talking back and forth and, and working together on things, and pretty soon I had um, worked on some topics with him. And we did some first-person style uh, presentations. And eventually what happened is um, they asked me to help them out with their programming because it gets tough if you don't know or have contacts with people mm -hmm. to who should I bring in, who can talk about this, or who's an expert on this. And just because of my experience, Experiences, and I'm not trying to um, elaborate, just trying to have the listeners understand. I've met a lot of people yeah. in a lot of places. And again, this is a wonderful community. And there has been very few people that I've ever run into that have not been friendly and not willing to help or answer questions. So I have the contacts now. And so I started doing my networking with other people. And between what the director of the fort would come up with and what I could come up with, we started building the balanced programs for school and long hunter. And let's see, I think I've been through three directors hmm. and they haven't kicked me out yet. <laughs> you must be Although doing a good current, job then. Well, the current director who is a very dear friend of ours <laughs> has threatened me a couple times, but I <laughs> haven't got rid of me yet. Um, Greg Bray, uh, he has been a cornerstone of that facility, Perkett's Fort, since its inception. In fact, he was there when they built it. Okay. Because he's a local, he's a local blacksmith, and he worked on getting the, the fort, the reproduction fort built as it is. And he's worked at the fort. He worked from the bottom all the way up. He was an interpreter. Then he became their blacksmith. Then he became their uh, assistant director and then eventually worked into the full directorship. 
So what happened is as the directors were changing, they figured out that he and I worked together really well. Like passed that program off onto us. Okay. And Greg's had had a lot to do with keeping the program going, getting it, you know, originally getting it started and trying to bring that living history piece where people could learn and grow. And the unique part about School of Long Hunter was, or it still is, is it doesn't matter if you walk into the School of Long Hunter wearing um, Gore-Tex coat and Merrill hiking boots or a complete 18th century kit. Because hmm. we allow anybody from beginners to advance to come. That's and we great. try to get topics for everybody so that even the people that are seasoned veterans, it may seem like an introductory topic, but it also gives them a point where they can reflect upon what they're doing to see how we can improve upon it. Yeah. Because yeah. as we go through time, our knowledge and things that we dig up become better, if that makes sense. Yeah. As I was working the other day trying to clean my workshop, I came across one of my first uh, pieces of headgear. Hmm. And it goes back to that centennial. My grandmother was an avid knitter. And my mom was reading the centennial book. And then, you know, they had the the miniseries come out on TV. Yeah. I took it over to my grandmother and I took my mom's book and I said, Grandma, I want a hat like this. And she knitted me my first toque. Oh. And so. That's so special. Yeah. Uh, so. You know, you start evolving from there, and then you find out that that was cool at the time, and it's still cool to me. But we find out through new things that come up in documents and journals and new things that are found in, in museums that are kind of squirreled away because some people don't think they're important, but they really are. Yeah. And uh, you find out that things need to be tweaked a little bit. <clears throat> so the School of Longhorn is an opportunity for people to – just come, relax. The atmosphere is great. You can't get a better historic location with a historic atmosphere and actually learn some things. But then you also, uh, a side benefit from School Long Hunter is the networking that takes place. Because you get to be introduced to people that, who are currently doing the research, mm -hmm. who are ahead of the curve on the research. And you get to learn from them. Yeah, and make friends with other individuals that are trying to do the same thing you are, or maybe they have some interesting twists on things, and they'll share with you, and you become friends with them. And then next thing you know, next year you might be camping with them. Yeah, I've seen a lot of friendships evolve over the last uh, 23 years that I've been working with them or going to the school in Long Hunter that uh, – have remained together and some of them have become really good friends. So for somebody who's not familiar with it, what is the event of, you know, of school of the long hunter? It sounds to me like you're describing like some educational seminars, but you also got your start at the event as, as a sutler or a, a vendor there, you know, selling some goods. So is it still a, a balance of that or is it something different then? Uh, it's still a good balance. Okay. The hard, I tell you what, the hard, be honest with you, the hard balance is the uh, subtler side of the event. 
we used to have, and we're going back way, you know, late 90s, early 2000, mm. full-blown settlers that would come and set up. You used to have Tom Muselich of Mountain Forge. Um, he would bring his forge goods. We used to have Ed Wilde. Oh, wow. He would bring CJ's blankets and her sashes and his bags, and he would set up a small settler light for that event. Mm-hmm. Um, as things moved on, I think what happens is you get tougher choices with settlers of larger scale events because you're talking about a captive audience of maybe anywhere from 80 to 140 people participants mm-hmm. okay very from year to year yeah the hard thing was not everybody is going to you know come buy stuff i guess is what i'm saying yeah there's a business so, side of that that you know if there's a larger group of people yeah the business side was was harder especially as things moved on because people started having their kits you know yeah uh I will tell you this, we still have some sellers that come. Um, there's lots of trade blankets. Trade blankets are always a high time oh. tool along, Hunter. I love shopping trade blankets. <laughs> <laughs> and we have a unique feature at the School Along Hunter, which is a long time running, where we have a designated set time where we have a trade round robin. Okay. So we say in our schedule, round robin trade and we set an hour and a half in between the different talks this year. It's on Saturday right after lunch. So the guys will get together and I have a couple of good friends that will kind of sit down, tell everybody the rules, remind everybody how it works. And everybody brings their trade trunks or their trade bags or their goodies, or maybe just one item. And we'll start working on it. Uh, it's, that's always a fun time because you see guys uh, put something out for trade and then everybody else puts on the table what they might offer. I had a couple of people who were watching it for the first time last year and they're like, this is really cool. Yeah. I have to do this here. It looks like fun. So School of Long Hunter is a balance of all kinds of different things, all kinds of different activities. So you have some historic lectures and I hate to use the term lecture because I don't want to think, want to turn people off, but they are very captivating. Mm-hmm. Um, gives you up-to-date research and information. We also have, this year, I try to bring in um, people who will do first-person interpretations because I think that's an interesting aspect of living history. Yeah, for sure. Difficult and um, very intimidating for some people to try. We've had Mad Ann Bailey come a couple different times. Oh, she's great. We used to have a school of the good wife, Hmm. which was just for... Now, when I say this, just for women, if men wanted to register, they could register too. We were equal opportunity individuals, just like school of long hunters, just not for guys. Right. They could start out as mainly men. And over time, guys started bringing their wives. And the wives have seemed to have enjoyed the topics as well, too, because earning as well. Yeah. Um, but it was fun to see Mad Ann because we got to see her a couple times throughout her progress and fine tuning her presentation. 
So that was kind of a neat thing. Some yeah. people said, well, why are you bringing her back again? I said, well, I think you got to, you just got to go and watch. Because there's an evolution with that. Just like, you know, we were talking about earlier about getting your kit around and then adjusting your kit as you're going through it. What she's doing is the same and, and she's bringing in new research and new information or maybe portraying a different period of Anne's life and, and just adding to that story. It's, it's really fascinating. It is. And I think, and the reason I brought that up and I'm, I'm trying not to, I don't want to seem like we're getting sidetracked because everything all works in together mm-hmm. because that cool long heart does. It gives you a chance to grow, evolve and gives you a good time to evaluate what your interests are and what you're doing. So this year, Matt Wolf is coming and he's going to do a first person, Simon Kenton. Oh, cool. Uh, Matt Wolf is is an excellent um, speaker. He's very knowledgeable on many different topics, especially different aspects of unconventional warfare in the French and Indian War. And I've had Matt speak for us several times on different topics, as well as I've done some other conferences and had Matt come. And everybody always raves about his knowledge and and how he expresses himself. So if you come to school in Long Hunter, you may see a PowerPoint. Uh, You may be out in the fort doing something hands-on if you choose to do so. We try to get hands-on topics where people can demonstrate and show you how to do things. And if you want to join in, you can. If you want to just watch and take notes, you can. This year we have an interesting topic where uh, a friend of mine from Ohio, the gentleman who uh, rebuilt a cabin, Alan Krause. He's going to come do a topic called Riving Boards and Making Pegs, Taking Your Cabin to the Next Level. <laughs> and his topic is going to be about what are some things you can do to make your 18th century space better? Yeah. You know, because a lot of guys are out there trying to do camps or hunting camps. What can I do to make give it a little bit of a flavor? So he's going to talk about how they rive boards and you're going to actually be able to do that. And different things that you can, easy things you can do in a cabin or a camp to give it that 18th century flair. I have a gentleman coming this year who's going to talk about Washington's small beer and brewing in the 18th century. Washington uh, knew that water was an issue. And so he tried to come up with an alternative that was safe for people to drink. And then my favorite, who pops up every... So often, Nathan Kobuck is going to be talking about new research on long hunters. We still stick with the long hunters. Long hunters were a very important part to our uh, colonial frontier heritage. And uh, Nathan's topic is more than just squirrel cookers, equipment of the long hunters. Hmm. So a new updated look. Yeah. One of our uh, things that we've been doing is we've reduced the amount of speed. We used to slam you didn't get a chance to breathe sometimes. We had so many speakers talk on so many different topics. So we eased up the schedule a little bit with fewer speakers, but more contact time where you can visit, go around, talk to people, go back and ask that speaker at their tent or their cabin, hey, can you show me this piece of equipment again? Uh, and it's a lot of sharing. We try to do sharing sessions yeah. periodic where bring your hunting bag in. And then we throw a bunch of blankets out in the middle of the fort and everybody puts their hunting bag down and dumps. It's like a a bag dump or a pocket dump for some of you bushcraft guys. You know, (laughs) what's 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 the everyday carry when you go out hunting in the woods? Yeah. 
and uh, just a kind of a way of, of learning from everybody. Um, so we're also trying to give practical aspects of what happens at the fort historically. So this year we have a topic called Forting Up with Justin Meinhardt uh, from Fort Pitt. And that's going to try and give everybody an idea and a flavor of what it meant to come back to the fort. Because let's talk about prickets if we can real quick. Yeah, of course. Um, Prickets is a very unique little location. And it is built at the confluence of Prickets Creek, excuse me, and the Monongahela River. And it was approximately 10 miles from three different major Indian trails. So you can imagine you are in Indian country and you had people homesteading in Indian country. So the local family, the Prickett family, put together and built this civilian fort. So here's a, here's a good one for everybody. If a person's name comes before the fort, so Prickett's Fort, it is a civilian fort designed as a stronghold in times of trouble. Everybody would bring their families together into the fort for protection. If it, uh, like Fort Pitt, it has fort at the beginning of the, the name, mm-hmm. that's a military installation. Oh, okay. So Prickett's Fort is one of the many little outposts that appear up on the colonial frontier and it was constructed in 1774 main purpose provide a protection point a rally point in times of native american stress and attacks and also give them a spot where they can come and and get together for meeting purposes and if they had to do militia drills and so forth like that they knew what they had to do when times were getting tough yeah now the actual fort itself is a beautiful, I always call it one of the best kept secrets in the living history world because you don't get a better setting than, than what you see. Um, it's nestled in the woods. You go the back roads up over the hill off of 79 and you can't hear 79 because you're still um, five miles off of it or so, but it's up in this hollow and it sits over top of the, of the rivers there and beautiful setting. Uh, wake up in the morning to uh, gobbling, and you can see why they put it there. Just yeah. a beautiful. Now, the fort itself, the Recruit Fort, is not an exact duplicate of what Prickett's Fort was because they've had very difficult time getting a description or a picture because there were no sketches left of what Prickett's Fort was like. Hmm. We just know there. So what the organizers did back in 76 when they decided to build this, I believe, is when they when they put it up. So I think when they were in the planning stages of um, 1974 through 76 is when all this took place, I believe. Um, they took and looked at all the different representative descriptions of forts in that area on the colonial frontier in the time period. And what they did is they put together the best representation of what a fort for a civilian group would look like. So it has, you know, uh, 12 foot high log walls. It's got 14 small cabins 
against the walls that would shelter individual families. It has two large central cabins in the middle, one we call the meeting house, and then the other one has a rifle shop and like a trading post in it. And it's got four um, block houses in each, you know, one in each of the corner. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So again, it's it's got different pieces of historic forts in that area's uh, colonial frontier. Yeah. So Prickett's Fort is a beautiful place. You can search Prickett's Fort on the uh, internet. It'll come up. And right now, it's interesting because it is a private foundation that runs this historic site in the middle of a national, in the middle of a West Virginia park. That's really cool. That's about as as natural and as real as you can get. Yeah, you got to, like I said, everybody, listeners, you got to do yourself a favor and, and, and go and search that. And you can see the different uh, pictures and photos that are up, and, and it's great. Yeah. But... Again, School of Long Hunter is an opportunity for people to learn, to grow. And we have people that come, and you can come and just camp if you want. Uh, we have that opportunity and availability to just come and hang out if you wanted to. Yeah. Um, without, you know, without taking the, the seminars, as we call it. And like I said, we've had, we've had some interesting speakers over the years. Um, I think I've Mark Baker. I twisted his arm, and he's come up three different times for me. And he always reminds me. I mean, Mark's a dear friend, good friend. I've known him for oh, probably going on thirty years almost now. And uh, he go- always reminds me, Bill. This is the tornado alley time of the year, and you're asking me to risk my life across alley to come to your event. I'm like, yes, Mark, please. <laughs> <laughs> and he does. But, and he does. And he's he's presented uh, thought-provoking stuff all the time. Yeah. And anybody we get, we try to do something that's going to spark some kind of thought or some kind of idea. Because to me, being a teacher... I hated going to a training or a conference when there wasn't anything you could bring back or do. Right. So as we've been working on this school of long hunter for all these years, we have tried to make sure that there's at least one takeaway or some type of spark or fire that gets ignited that gets you ready for the upcoming season. Because this is like, a first, first out of the gate yeah. type event, you know, where you can camp out, you know, Kalamazoo was always great. And I hope you had a good time there. Cause we used to take center mark there and it was, it was a wild time for sure. Just oh yeah. Trying to, uh, but that would give you kind of the, the, you know, the juices would get flowing. Um, you know, you have the event at Lewisburg with the artisan show. Yeah. It gets your ideas going and maybe it tweaks some gear Prickets comes, you can actually, you're camping out and doing your living history stuff, <clears throat> enjoying good folks, and maybe seeing how that gear might work for you to start off with and maybe what you need to tweak it. You can ask people about it. They're going to give you their opinion. Um, they're going to help you. They're not going to say, oh, that's a piece of garbage. You can't do that. 
they're going to say, hey, maybe you need to do a little bit of this or a little bit of that to it. Yeah. Very, very good, positive, constructive things. So School Long Hunter is designed to give you that spark. It gets you charged up for the season ahead, whether you're going to shoots or whether you're going to reenactments or whether you're going just to camp hang out. Um, this year for the shooters, an interesting look if you – Listeners don't know Mike Bellevue. Um, he does the Duelist Den. Yeah. And he has lots of YouTube videos that are fantastic where he does reviews and tips and hints about all different aspects of historical shooting. Uh, he is going to talk about the long distance shot this year at School Long Hunter. Oh, that'll be good. He's done some really cool research because for you fans of uh, footlock rifles, the rifleman to me that's my latest fascination now is is riflemen in the revolutionary war especially with the 250th coming up so that's what we're gearing up to do some of the crazy crazy stuff these riflemen would do and their trick shooting is just unbelievable it's just there's so many different fascinating parts to this uh, long rifle culture and things that we still have yet to discover yeah oh yeah or things we have to better understand if that makes sense it does i think that's what's intriguing about it is there's this 200 you know 150 200 year old material culture we'll say that that so many of us are interested in and and the people and the history you know around all of it but it's still not decided. It's not not everything is concrete with it. I mean, we all know, you know, a flintlock is a flintlock. But there's so much that you can just explore and enjoy, and, and still there's a lot to learn. I think that's really exciting. It, it is extremely exciting. You know, over all these years, things have evolved in our research and artifacts and everything else. Yes. But it was still the same style of community. And that always takes me back sometimes to realize that that's how good this community is. Yeah. This community, muzzle loading, black powder, living historians. That's how great of a community it is. It is surviving. I will tell you this listeners, listen up very carefully. We are a dwindling community. We need to get out and get younger people involved. This has been a frustrating, frustrating event for all of us because we go to our events and it's the old guys. We don't see the young guys like when I was eight years old, hanging out, listen to all the old guys talk about their craft or talk about history and just, you know, clamoring on to every word that they said, we don't have a lot of that today. And that's what we need to try and fix so that this continues on for many more years to come. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. It's, I guess, in a, a word of encouragement, I, I met with and, and saw quite a few people this past weekend at Kalamazoo, uh, really in that under 40 age group, not to disparage, you know, anybody over 40 with that. But, um, you know, I, I don't we don't have any numbers yet on how many people attended, uh, but it was encouraging to see as many as many younger people there soaking up information and and you know, with cash in hand to gear up and, and hopefully get ready to get out and have some fun. You know what? That's what it's all about. Yep. That's what it's about getting out and having fun. And again, not to be like a shameless plug, but school and long hunter provides that for people 
because it doesn't matter where you're at on the curve, you're still welcome. Yeah. Not like an event that has very specific standards. And if you don't meet these standards and don't have this exact kit, you can't attend. Right. We welcome everybody. And let me tell you, you ask any, any of the participants, yeah, we have serious learning, but we have a lot of serious fun. So where can people go to learn more about the School of the Long Hunter as well as you and your work? Do you have a website out there about your work? Or is it still? I don't have a website yet. Okay. I'm going to put together a Facebook page. Um, my wife always yells at me because I do not have a Facebook page. Uh, she does, and I stalk off of her Facebook page. <laughs> and I told her I can't afford to get a Facebook page now because all my contacts huh, are on her on Facebook her- page. <laughs> I don't want to have to build that up again. But uh, to find out about School of Long Hunter, all you need to do is you can go to our website. It's the Prickett's Fort Memorial Foundation. And you have to go to www.prickett'sfort, and it's spelled P-R-I-C-K-E-T-T-S, fort.org, www.prickett'sfort.org. Awesome. And that gets you to the site, tell you about the Prickett's um, Ford itself and they have an events column and just go on the events or the calendar and it'll show you the different things that we're doing. We have lots of different classes, hands-on classes for people at Prickett's Ford throughout the year. We are doing a first time and hopefully one of many new events this year. We are doing a fall market fair. Oh, okay. So everybody can have go and have a blast this summer. And or this this season, which usually runs from about April, right after the market fair at Fort Frederick, <clears throat> all the way through October, and some people do events in December even. But we're hoping that just like the market fair and Kalamazoo give you a spark to do things and learn more and go to things like School of Long Hunter, that at the towards the end of the season we're going to have a market fair at Prickett's along the same lines as Fort Frederick and Fort Loudon, that'll give you a chance to say, okay, what do I want to work on for the, for the year mm-hmm. over the winter to improve my gear and maybe give you an opportunity to talk to some people or pick up some equipment or pick up some materials that'll help you do your projects for the coming winter. That's a mission I can get behind. Lots of good people out there. Lots of cool stuff to learn. Just try and get to what you can. Get out there and, and do stuff. Yeah. No matter no matter what level you can. If you can just pick up and go for the weekend or go visit for a day, do it. I'd like to thank Bill again for coming onto the show and talking with us about his personal history, why he loves muzzleloading, as well as long hunter culture and the school of the long hunter. As I said at the beginning of the episode, we're going to have everything that Bill talked about uh, linked in the show notes below. Some of those firsthand accounts I'm going to have laid out there for you to check out, uh, as well as some of the other kind of auxiliary information that Bill has talked about. Bill's 
super friendly guy. Like we said there, we were put in touch by a, a mutual friend here in the muzzleloading living history community. And uh, I really enjoyed sitting down and talking with him. Uh, we're working on planning a couple more episodes based on, uh, on what Bill wants to talk about. So I'm excited to see what he comes up with. As always, I'd like to thank you so much for watching. This was uh, a fun episode, and I hope you've enjoyed the other episodes that we've published here this spring. I have quite a few more in the docket, ranging from uh, you know competitive black powder to beginners in black powder uh, to contemporary kind of legendary artisans, I think, uh, which I, I hope that you enjoy the future conversations as well as the ones that we've put out uh, here over the last year. It's been a lot of fun getting out and talking with folks here in the community. Uh, as of recording, I just got back from the Kalamazoo Living History Show, and that was a great time meeting with so many of you and chatting with you about why you love muzzleloading. At the end of the day, I love muzzleloading, you love muzzleloading, and that's what this is all about, sharing our passion for this so we can, sh we can extend it to another generation and generations to come. As always, I'm Ethan. I love muzzleloading. Thank you so much for watching or listening. <laughs> and we'll catch you next time. In business, you rarely hear the expression for life. You make a purchase for a product, for a service, and, and there's, a, there's a time frame there. Well, that's not the case with Awaken 180 weight loss. Allow me to explain. You know, a year ago, I started with Awaken 180 weight loss and had incredible success losing weight. But you can lose all the weight in the world and not keep it off. And what good is it? That's why I have support for life from Awaken 180. Yeah. I mean, I go back for check-ins and make sure everything's going smoothly. But if I ever had a problem, the counselors are there to get me back on track. Why don't you do what I did and call for a consultation? 844-346-1800. 844-346-1800. Or go to awaken180weightloss.com.